My dad died. I miss my friends because of... I don't know how to tell my friends that. I want to help my friends. I don't know how. The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely. How can I best support students in my classroom? My uncle abused me. The morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is the morning meeting. Hello and welcome to the morning meeting. I'm Mandy Zucker, your host. Today's guest is Annie Tolkien, the founder and director of Accessible College. She's an expert in the area of college prep and transition for students with physical disabilities and health conditions, and she supports students and families across the country. Annie was the Associate Director of Academic Resource Center at Georgetown University for nearly six years. In that position, she supported undergraduate, graduate, and medical students with physical disabilities and health conditions and oversaw academic support services for the entire student body. Currently, she lives in Silver Spring, Maryland with her husband and daughter, and I'm really excited to talk to her today. So Annie, thank you so much for coming on the Morning Meeting Podcast. We are very happy to have you. Thanks, Mandy. I'm excited to be here. So why don't you just tell us a little bit first about Accessible College? Sure. So Accessible College provides college transition support for students with physical disabilities and health conditions. And just to kind of break that down a little bit, health conditions might include things like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, POTS, lupus, cancer, diabetes, autoimmune disorders, as well as mental health conditions. And physical disabilities, um, I work to support students who are wheelchair users, students who use mobility devices and have limited mobility. Um, And we work with students in the college search process, the school selection process, and beyond, too. We work with students who are in college as well on executive function skills and making sure that they have the self-advocacy skills, supports to be able to be successful in the college setting. Why did you create an organization to do that? That's a great question Um, because it didn't exist. Um, So I uh, used to be the associate director of the disability support office at Georgetown University. Um, And at Georgetown, that office is called the Academic Resource Center. And I had so many students uh, with health conditions and physical disabilities who were coming into the college setting and really didn't understand the college accommodations process, what types of accommodations they could request, their role in the accommodations process, which is very, very different from um, what it might have been in the in the high school setting. So, for example, in college, students have to self-disclose their disability. They have to be really good self-advocates. Um, and so that that's a really big shift. But also looking at some of the other components as well, things like living on campus and the housing needs um, and medication management and some of the other pieces that often get forgotten about as a student is moving towards college and independent living. Um, And so I started Accessible College to work with students and families to to address some of those gaps. So I'm I'm not a college consultant, although I often work alongside college consultants and high school guidance counselors or high school college counselors. What I do with students is working through the questions they should be asking the types of preparation they should put in place so that they're ready to have those conversations with college administrators and really just making sure that the students are kind of prepared for that next phase and what's to come in the college setting. It's a good point. Like when you're in high school, 
you know, even in high school, right, we tell our students that you have to start advocating for yourself more, and we hope that they're doing that even, you know, before they go to college, but there's a whole new set of things that occur when you go to college. So you, even if you've done a good job advocating for yourself in high school, it doesn't mean that you even are aware of some of the things you need to ask about when you head to college. It's so true. And um, I think a lot of families don't also know that once a student matriculates and matriculate is like a fancy word for once they've signed that uh, dotted line and committed to a college, FERPA, the Federal Educational Rights and Privacy Act kicks in. And so basically at that point, the student is getting all of the information from the college. Um, so that means that parents no longer get the students' grade reports. They don't get any reports about disciplinary action. Um, they might not even get sent um, some of the bill material unless the student gives them access to those things. So some students that I work with actually um, choose to sign a FERPA waiver with their parents and with the college so that the parent can still have access to that information. But what that also means functionally is that the student has to be the one to talk to the disability support office and to engage with student health or the counseling center and also with professors. Sometimes parents want to try and contact professors, but professors are, are not allowed to speak with parents because of this law, FERPA. And so that's a really big shift, not only for the students, but for the parents as well, who may have had more access to the students, teachers, when the student was in the high school setting. They each have their own name. Yeah, how so does, yeah, disability know? support office, right? Yeah, it, this is like the trickiest piece, right? Co in college, accommodations are governed under a law called the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA. Um, mm -hmm. We just had the 31st anniversary of the ADA this July, 2021. Um, so that, that's a big deal. It's been, it's been in existence for 31 years. Um, and how that looks in the college setting means that um, most colleges have a disability support office and the office might have a different name at each place. So it could be um, student support services. It could be disabled student services. It could be student accessibility services. The best way to find that office um, is to go to the college's website and put in the word disability and student. And typically it'll be the first search thing that comes back up about accommodations, the process for requesting accommodations for students with disabilities. But I think something that that a lot of parents don't know is that it's not automatically the same types of accommodations that you may have had in the high school setting. So it's really important to do your research on the front end, maybe as you're searching schools and as you're looking into these different programs to see what types of services and supports that colleges offer because the types of accommodations really vary from college to college and also the care in which accommodations are administered really varies from college to college. And if, if you need more touch points, that might be something that you want to look for when you're searching for colleges. Um, tours and things like that, you want to be asking questions about how involved are they? Sure. And also making an appointment with the disability support office when you're on a tour or doing the research on their website to see what services and supports that they offer. Because typically the tour process is distinctly separate from the disability process. So you might get general answers when you're on a college tour, but if you want the real deal, nitty gritty, which 
probably most of the students that we work with, yeah. Mandy, are, are looking for and their parents are looking for, you really want to get in touch with that disability support office. My podcast is really about grieving students. So grief is not a disability, but it can impair some of the academic abilities of students. So if somebody loses someone as a sophomore in college, is that somewhere that they should be reaching out to, to the Office of Accessible Services? Like if it triggers a depression or if they're really struggling to get things done and they need some accommodations in their classroom, which I talk about a lot, I really think that grieving students should be accommodated. How do they get those kinds of things done? That's a great question. And it looks a little bit different at each school. So first, the student should be in touch with like their academic dean or their academic advisor. If, if you've experienced a loss in your family that's impacting your school, or if you need to take time off to go, you know, intend to family issues or needs right. or concerns, you should always, students should always be in contact with their academic advisor or their academic dean to let them know what's going on. Typically, the academic dean or advisor will work with the student and their professors to put kind of temporary accommodations in place. So those might be things like extensions for assignments or um, the ability to take a test at a later date, um, maybe getting the notes for the class, that type of stuff. If the student then has a subsequent um, mental health concern, right, and they've identified a provider and they've been given a diagnosis of, of, let's say, for example, depression, Mm -hmm. Um, subsequently. Then the question that that I would have, um, and I would have had when I was sitting behind the desk is, what are the functional limitations? So how is that depression impacting the student's ability to engage in the classroom, right? So is the student also taking medication that might cause brain fog or sleepiness? Is the student unable to do the work in a timely manner because of the depression? So there's some other things in figuring out How does it impact the student's life? That's where the ADA kind of kicks in because the definition of a disability is is an impairment that impacts someone's major life functions. So we have to figure out what are the functional limitations related to the condition because not everybody who has the diagnosis of depression needs accommodations. And oftentimes people with grief, like it's not a disability. So they may not be, you know, most often, hopefully they're not taking medication for grief. So there's not going to be like almost like a paper trail of, you know, well, this is what's happening. So I need accommodations. It's just that someone died. You know? Yeah. And there might out there. So and we should also say that there are other things that might be appropriate at that point. So every school has a leave of absence policy as well. So you know, a student might consider taking a personal leave of absence uh, for a period of time or withdrawing from school. And all of those processes would be done through their academic dean or their advisor. Most schools have a student handbook that outlines all of the, you know, leave and withdraw policies. So students could look to, to to those handbooks to kind of see, like, how does this work? What is the process? Um, But yeah, so there's, so the, I say like there's a couple different touch points or places that a student might want to look. The other piece of that is that a lot of times disability support offices are connected in some way to, to the academic support wing of the school. So if a student is experiencing grief or is having another, another challenge or an issue, there are typically resources and supports on college campuses 
for like tutoring services, for writing support, for, you know, small group help, even academic coaching. So if students need those things, they should be in touch with whatever office it is that provides those type of services. Sometimes the disability support office might be like the first touch point, and then they can refer the student to the other office, or it might be an integrated office. Students shouldn't hesitate to contact one of those offices to then find the right office, right? Because universities are like small cities. (laughs) They have lots of departments. Um, And so typically, if one place isn't the right place, might know where the student might go for the support that they're looking for. Sounds so encouraging. Like when I hear you talking about that, I'm like, oh, there's, there's so many different opportunities for support, it kind of brings me back to that advocacy piece, because if you can't access them, if you don't know how to ask, there's all these supports that are available that you're not going to access. So how do we teach kids disabilities with all sorts of issues to to advocate? Yeah, this is the challenge, right? So even if these services and supports exist, it doesn't always mean that people are using them or know how to access them. You know, one thing that I think like families can do earlier on in high school, prior to high school, quite frankly, you know, is start to work on some of those skills of self-advocacy, like allowing the student, if the student has an IEP or a 504 plan in their high school, making sure that the student is actually a part of those meetings and, Mm -hmm. and is engaged in those meetings. You know, maybe there's some preparation that occurs prior to that meeting so that the student has questions to ask as well. The same thing goes for like making a doctor's appointment, making sure your student has those critical skills of Um, knowing how to call their doctor, preparing for that doctor's appointment, same kind of process, making questions to ask the doctor or writing out a statement of things they want to share with their doctor um, so that they're more engaged in that process. I think the, the challenge that most parents have, and I'll put on my parent hat now, is that it's hard sometimes to let your kid do those things and to rely on them to do it. Sometimes as a parent, it's easier to do it yourself because you know it's done and you know it's done appropriately and in a timely manner. Sometimes students need to experience, you know, like things not working out in order to learn from that. And at least if they're at home with you, they can do that in a safe environment. When they're at college and things go off the rails, you know, they, they go off the rails. <laughs> so, and there's, there's not as much oversight, you're right. They're not in your home. Um, yeah. Typically the idea, I mean, it seems so basic, but like having your kids start at a young age making appointments like it's a pretty basic thing they actually don't talk on the phone that much right so learning how to to call someone and say I need to make an appointment writing down your appointment time like that is it's it feels basic but for so many kids going to college it could be the first time that they've had to do that Yeah. I mean, scheduling, using a calendar, like these are the executive function skills that a lot of people talk about these days. And, you know, a lot of students don't actually have those skills. So whether it's like getting your student engaged with their phone calendar or getting them a wall calendar or something that works for them. And for each student, it's going to be different, just like it is for each adult, right? Like what system is going to be best? But having a system is what is what is most important. And so a lot of students kind of struggle with with figuring that out. You know, in high school, teachers usually like 
send out constant reminders. They remind the students when things are coming up. They write things on the board. In college, you don't you don't get that. You you typically get the syllabus. You might get a reminder to the student really needs to be able to recognize when things aren't working out and identify at least generally the type of support that they might need. And right. that's tricky. That's tricky for students. I, I'm thinking of like my own kids who are college age. You know, recently, like my son sent me a letter, a cover letter that he had written and he wanted me to edit it. I tried not to do like, you know, cross the whole paragraph off and start it all over and just send this out. But I tried to just ask some questions like, what are you trying to say here to help him figure out how to rewrite it? But they have to come up with their own style and personality and they have to ask their own questions so you know feeding them too much like ask them this specific question might not actually be the best way it might work short term but ultimately it's not going to get them to learn how to ask questions well yeah and there's a difference between supporting your your child or student and doing the work for them right? So you can, you can give them the tools to kind of move forward in that process without doing the work for them. And it right. sounds like that's what you were doing. You know, you were, you were time. engaging, <laughs> right? And doing that. Um, I should, I should say too, because that's a good, a good thing that you just raised is that most colleges have a career center where they will work with students on, you know, these kinds of pieces. But again, that's another one of those, like, insider things like if you don't know that that exists or if you're not thinking about it like students and and families you know aren't always aware of all of the resources that exist on a college campus and you know that includes mental health resources whether it's through the campus counseling center and there are some limitations to that which we can talk about most colleges also have like a health education services kind of component to their student health which might also offer you know groups or types of in- different types of classes or engagement around health and wellness issues. And and so, again, doing that research about what's available on that specific college campus is going to be beneficial upfront for families that are starting that search process with their student. I'm just curious about, like, how many kids on a college campus actually need services like this? Yeah. So we know from federal data that 19% of undergraduate college students receive accommodations. Accommodations could be things like a note taker, um, extended time for an exam, preferential seating. It could also be um, an ADA compliant um, room or a an ASL interpreter, a sign language interpreter. So there's a, a wide array of accommodations that are typical in the college setting. And that 19% of undergraduates, that, that encompasses students with learning disabilities, ADD, autism, mobility impairments, psychiatric impairments, sensory impairments. So that's a, it's it's a lot, it's a lot of different components of people who have conditions that might need accommodations. The other thing to remember is that that 19% number shows us the students who have gone to the disability support office, gone through the accommodations process. So that's provided, providing documentation, having a conversation with the people in the disability support office to be approved for accommodations. So we can imagine that there's probably a whole nother group of students, maybe another 19 or 20% 
who might qualify for accommodations, but either has decided not to request accommodations or they don't know they can request accommodations. That makes students with disabilities probably the largest minority group on that campus, which mirrors what we see in the United States too, where people with disabilities are the largest minority group in the United States. And I know that a lot of times the word disability can be kind of triggering for some people, a lot of students I work with who have health conditions don't consider themselves disabled. A lot of people who have other types of conditions might not think of it that way, but under the kind of ADA umbrella and in the accommodation world umbrella, that's how it's talked about and labeled. I, I was just thinking that as you were talking, like, wouldn't it be nice? We didn't need it because we always included people. We created environments where there were, um, you know, I'll say accommodations, but they weren't even accommodations. That's just the way that the environment was created. I'm, you know, that, you know, people had more choices in a classroom that there were, I mean. Yeah, but this is a thing that exists. It's called um, universal design and there's universal design for learning. And then there's universal design for physical spaces, right? So Part of that too is, and you're seeing this now, I'm seeing it at more universities where, especially since COVID and, and remote education became a thing that we all had to do, a lot, of, a lot of universities are actually just incorporating some of these practices like providing transcriptions of classes, providing notes, um, you know, allowing students to come in remotely, even if there's an in-classroom experience occurring. So students could do kind of a hybrid model and just creating, creating different types of assessments as well. So students can choose. Do you want to take the exam? Do you want to do a presentation? Do you want to write a paper? There are some schools that are doing that and some, you know, and some professors in particular who are, who are like just doing that in their own classroom. And that's called universal design for learning, right? It's giving people more access points and the ability to just not have to request extra accommodations through the accommodations process. Other them. Yeah. I mean, and then the, the physical kind of component of that too is around architecture and design, right? So creating spaces for people that work for everybody. So, you know, instead of having stairs at all, you know, just having a a level ramp so that everybody can use that, whether it's a person in a wheelchair, parents with a stroller, grandma, grandpa, a person with a heavy backpack, whatever, so that there are more just universally accessible spaces too. And that's something, you know, that we're seeing more in design in, in many of our communities. I love that. And I would love for more teachers to uh, just to Google that and see what comes up, because I think, you know, for um, for grieving students, there's so many different ways that we can accommodate them if we were more flexible in our in our teaching modalities, which we can do. And it's not just for grieving students, it's for kids with anxiety or, you know, a whole bunch of learning issues. So I love that idea. That sounds well, I think the question for teachers and professors is like, what what is what does the student have to demonstrate mastery and how how do they demonstrate that mastery of that content, right? And so sometimes when you dig into that a little bit, you know, professors or teachers have just been so set in the way that they've always done the thing, right? And so it, it can be hard to think outside the box about other ways that that students can. Um, demonstrate, you know, content knowledge or mastery of a subject. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think that there are so many models now. It's just, you know, getting people to get on board and 
take a look at all of the stuff that's out there that exists. It's reminding me of this story. I was just sharing it actually, um, that when my son was in, I think he was in ninth grade or something, he had a science teacher and they had to do an assignment and all of the answers had to be written in all caps. I don't know why, but that was his assignment. My son did the assignment. He got it back and he got a C on the assignment. And when we looked at it, he actually got an A. He got all of the right answers, except for any word that had the letter L in it, because he wrote the letter L with a straight line instead of an actual capital letter L. So any word that had an L, he got marked wrong. And when he went to the teacher and said, you know, I I actually knew all of the science, the teacher said, well, that's too bad. You know, that's the world. And there's, you know, you don't get second chances and he wouldn't change the grade. And I thought to myself, and I actually said to my son, like, that's not the world I want to live in. And I do hope that there are people out there and bosses that you could have when you grow up that are looking for your expertise and aren't looking to penalize you for things just so that they can. Yeah. And I, I mean, and we, and we should also say that if a student experiences discrimination in, in the college setting, whether it's a professor who's denying accommodations, which doesn't often happen, but, but does happen. Every college has a grievance policy where, a st- where the student can file a grievance, typically through the disability support office. And if they have an institutional office of equity and access, um, usually those things kind of filter through there. So there, there is recourse. I think this is one of the things that I often talk to students about too, is like, just because a professor says something doesn't mean that the end of the conversation, right? So it's okay to ask questions, um, and you know, and it's and and you can do that without being disrespectful, right? And you might need to bring in other administrators and get feedback too. And that's a hard, sometimes a hard lesson for a lot of young adults to to learn. They're they're like, well, the professor said it. He said there's no more. I can't do it. Da, da, da. But my question is always like, well. What accommodation do you have in place? And was that actually executed and given to you? Um, And what, you know, like, what is, what is the recourse or what could you do if you wanted to continue that conversation or challenge that decision? So, and I think that's an uncomfortable position for a lot of students to be in because there's a power dynamic, the reality of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm also wondering about 19, 20% of students are already identified. And then there's probably double that. So that brings us to maybe 40% of a college campus has some kind of uh, a need for an accommodation. Sure. What about the other 60%? How can the other 60% uh, be supportive, be allies to the people that are um, yeah. under that umbrella? Yeah, I, I think it's important that disability be a part of the diversity mission of the university. And the way that other students can, can bring that in is bringing in disability as an aspect of diversity in student government and thinking about creating accessible events like you were talking about, creating yep. events for every student that are universally accessible. So thinking about dietary restrictions, about people's needs. So it might be having sign language interpreters or having, you know, CART real-time transcription at your events or things like that. I also think it's about bringing in the kind of intersectionality, right? Recognizing that people with disabilities come from all different groups and backgrounds. And so, you know, bringing in that experience and that perspective into student programming is huge. It's, I mean, that that's huge. It's just like even naming it 
yep. you know, disability as an aspect of the diversity issues on a campus is powerful, especially since we know that there are so many students who are in that category. So I think that other students can can raise that issue and raise um, raise up disability as an aspect of diversity on those college campuses. And physical access too, that's always a huge issue on every campus. Every college campus says that they're ADA compliant, but we know that you know ADA compliance is one thing, but usability is, is a totally different thing. What it feels like for someone to navigate a space as someone who might need to use a, have an accessible door. You know, a lot of historic college campuses have buildings where the accessible entrance is in the back by the alley next to the trash cans. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what does that, what does that feel like for users and how, how does that space, you know, how does that space kind of tell a story of what that institution thinks or feels about people with disabilities and, and building off that, like as new halls or new things are being designed, how are we considering disability issues and accessibility issues up front, right? Whether that's the physical space or a programmatic space, if it's a new program that's being developed, yep. it should always be at the forefront in, in people's thinking about how they're designing and creating spaces. It's not just about, you know, accommodating, but it's also about prevention. You know, you want to create spaces that are safe, uh, physically, emotionally, um, you know, college is stressful for everyone. So we want to create spaces that, you know, are calming or that feel supportive in ways that don't increase anxiety and, and things like that. Yeah. And there's a ton of research around, like, this is not, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Like yep. <laughs> there's a ton of research around, around this type of stuff. And so, you know, students can draw on that, but again, I just think like raising the issue, raising yep. disability as, um, as something that needs to be looked at and considered in, in all aspects of campus life is, important. Absolutely. Anything else that you felt like we should make well, sure? I did, to want to say, I did want to say, because we did talk about like college counseling centers, and I think it's important because this might be a thread that your community is really um, interested in. Sure. So most college counseling centers will see students for maybe one to <laughs> one to six times, depending on the school, before they refer them out to a provider in the community. So one of the things that I talk with about to the families that I work with and support is, per, excuse me, finding a provider prior to starting school. So I joke with students that like, you know, finding a therapist is a lot like online dating. You might have to try a couple before you find the right one. <laughs> so that process takes time. And it's also important to be looking at your insurance before, you know, your student goes away to see if that insurance would apply to that other state, if it's in another state. So there's some, there's some like nuances and pieces that families should be considering but a lot of things them, like, again, accessibility, like if you're looking for a therapist and the closest one is 30 miles from campus, do you have a way to get there? And so, and there might be features, um, for example, um, there are a couple schools that actually offer rides, like free rides, because they are a little bit more remote to yep. the cities and you just have to arrange that for through the school. So it's, you have to know to look into those pieces, right? And, um, and you know, like finding, finding care providers, whether it's a therapist or a acupuncturist or whatever, you know, an occupational or physical therapist, getting those things set up before your student goes 
and start school can be hugely helpful because then there's less pressure. But I think a lot of families think, oh, they can just go to the counseling center and get the support that they need. And that's not the case because the counseling centers are typically more about short-term and triage and like mental health crisis situations. There might also be groups available. You know, you, you focus on grief. I know a lot of colleges actually have groups for students um, who have experienced loss and grief. Also students, you know, who have eating disorders, there are groups for that or students who have, you know, social anxiety or things like that. So looking at what types of groups and services and supports that that college offers, just so your student knows this is available. It doesn't mean they have to go to it immediately during the first week or something, but just so it's there as a possibility, um, it's important to know what services and supports are, are out there. So I would say like, look, look into that families as you're doing your college search. And I think also just knowing that they, if a college has, you know, if they have one kind of mental health support, let's say, um, versus another college that has 15 different kinds with groups and individual therapies and, you know, awareness campaigns and all these things, it probably says something different about that school and the way that they could support you if you ever have a need, even if you don't at the time. So it's something to always think about. And I think it's also important to actually like talk, call up and talk to the people on the other side of the phone. You know, uh, people sometimes assume like, oh, if it's a bigger school, they'll have more things, right? But but sometimes there are advantages to a smaller school too. You have more touch points, more people looking in, more people are available. So it's it's not this is the this is this and this is this. It's better or worse or whatever. It's really just based on your students' needs, and actually having those conversations and doing your research um, and not making any assumptions because again, the services really vary from college to college. Um, so you should really kind of do that upfront work to see what's what's going on at the, at the schools that your students the most interested in. Absolutely. If people have more questions, how can they find you? Yeah, so people can uh, find me on my website, which is www.accessiblecollege.com. Um, if you go to my website, you can also sign up for my monthly newsletter down at the bottom on the left. You can do that. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, all under Accessible College. Um, and I also wanted to tell people, just in case anyone's listening who this might be relevant for, I have a partnership with the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation to provide free consultation services for students with paralysis. And paralysis is a broad term. So that might be students who have um, cerebral palsy or spinal muscular atrophy or students who have a spinal cord injury. Um, And so to take advantage of that, they just have to connect with the Reeve Foundation. But if you go to my website, you can find all of that information as well. Um, And I'm doing a lot of other work too with a lot of different health condition specific organizations too. And I I have lots of updates on my blog so people can keep in touch with me. That's terrific. Thank you so much for your time. This was really informative. Yeah, I'm glad we could do this. Thanks, Mandy. Absolutely. Thank you so much to Annie for this really interesting and enlightening conversation. 
Join us next week when we speak to Christina Jones. When Christina was seven, her father died from cancer, and she knew one day she wanted to share her story on how she kept the connection to her dad alive. So she wrote a book called My Forever Guardian. While she was writing that book, she noticed the immense lack of online support for the millions of grieving children here in the United States. So she decided to start her own organization um, that would give children access to grief counseling online. So we're going to talk all about it next week. I hope you'll join us then. That's all for today. Good morning to all of you.